Hello everyone and welcome to today's Shoesmith podcast, where we're going to be covering the topics of governing law and jurisdiction. My name is Paul Nightingale and I'm a senior associate in the commercial and projects team. Hello, my name is Rio Champaneri and I'm a trainee solicitor in the commercial and projects team at Shoesmith. So Rhea, let's start with the basics. Can you tell us in simple terms what a governing law clause is, please? Yes. So the aim of governing law clause is to clarify which country's law will be applied to the contract, which means it will be used to identify and interpret the rights and obligations of the parties under the contract. Okay, so why do we need to set this out in a clause? Shouldn't it be obvious? Well, as we'll see, not as obvious as you might think. And as well as this, governing law clauses can be a lot more complex than you might think so. A governing law clause applies to a wide range of contractual issues. It governs not only the interpretation and performance, but also the consequences of breach, including assessments of damages. Meaning if you get sued, the governing law clause will likely have a big impact on how you'll be defending yourself and ultimately what they might have to pay or what you might have to pay. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's important then that the choice of governing law should be considered at the very start of drafting the contract. This is because a lawyer qualified in the relevant jurisdiction will need to advise on or draft the agreement. That's right. So even if you're a company based in England and contracting with another party based in England, you shouldn't just assume that the contract you're looking at will be under English governing law. You should ensure to check at the outset and agree to specify this in the contract. If the contract is governed by Australian law, you'll need to engage an Australian lawyer to review and draft it. Yes, a well-drafted governing law clause will minimise uncertainty and the risk of potentially costly disputes over which country's law governs the party's rights and obligations under the contract. So does this mean that the parties to a contract can essentially choose any laws to govern their contract? Yes, the parties are free to choose a governing law. In practice, most of the time the governing law will be the law of the country in which the parties are based or incorporated or where the work under the contract is taking place. But in some cases, there may be strategic reasons for parties choosing a specific governing law. Yes, for example, in international cross-border transactions, the choice of law becomes particularly important. That's right, especially where all or part of the transaction is to be performed in a country other than the place where the parties are incorporated. Sometimes in these situations, the parties might choose a particular governing law that's different from where either party is based and may not even be the laws of the country where the work or the services are taking place. Why might that be the case? Well, the parties might be aiming for a neutral system of law or one that's usually applied for the type of international contract they're working on. So, for example, project finance deals often use English law. Some systems of law also tend to be well regarded internationally for various reasons. For example, the law might be well established and be seen as having clear positions on various issues that might be the cause of a contractual dispute. Certain systems of law might also be flexible in respect of things like business law or taxation practices. And the judges may also be seen as experienced and impartial in their application of the law in a dispute. Although we'll come on to that more in the jurisdiction section later. Those are really interesting points. So let's have a think about what happens if the parties don't specify a governing law in the contract. Yes, well, if the transaction is purely domestic, so, for example, the parties are incorporated in the same country and the contract involves the supply of goods or services in the same country. Where it hasn't been specified in the contract, the applicable law is likely to be the law of the country where the parties are incorporated and where the contract was signed. Having said that, it's still best practice to expressly state the applicable governing law in the contract. 
if the governing law is found to be a law that the parties had not expected, the contract might not be interpreted in the way that the parties had intended either. That's right. So to be clear, in the UK, when the governing law hasn't been specified, the courts will usually look to apply the law of the country that they think that the contract is most closely connected with. Yes, and to provide a little extra context behind that, this is determined by a set of rules known as the Rome 1 and Rome 2 regulations. Yes, the Rome 1 and Rome 2 regulations provide a set of rules to determine which governing law applies to the contract by the member states' courts of the EU. The regulations consider various factors, such as the place of performance and the place of residence of the parties, and the place where the contract was made. The UK government has said that they will continue to use these regulations post-Brexit, at least for the moment, but there may be changes to this. Yeah, and one thing that's worth adding here is that having a governing law clause isn't always an absolute fail-safe option. Some countries will refuse to apply a foreign governing law if the contract is a purely domestic one. Notably, this is usually the case in China. So if the parties to the contract both have offices in China and the services or products are being carried out or sold in China, the Chinese courts would probably refuse to apply, say, English law to the contract if there's a dispute, even if the contract clearly states English law as the governing law. Yes, you might see that in some other jurisdictions as well. Brazil is another one that comes to mind. So I suppose the point is that you should always be cautious of these issues when negotiating cross-border contracts. Okay, let's talk about jurisdiction, which is the second area we're focusing on today. Ria, can you give everyone a quick summary of what we mean by jurisdiction and how this differs from governing law? Sure. The two things are often considered in the same clause or in a linked clause, but they're actually quite separate things. Whilst governing law refers to the law which applies to the contract, Jurisdiction is a dispute resolution clause, which identifies which court or courts are to hear a dispute about the contract. That's right. Um, Our usual advice would be for parties to include both governing law and jurisdiction language in their contract. Otherwise, this might lead to ambiguity and potentially lengthy and costly arguments over which court should determine a dispute. Yes, that's right. So parties should carefully consider how the court system operates in different countries when negotiating jurisdiction clauses. They should give thought to things like practicality and convenience, the availability and costs of lawyers, the location of the parties or witnesses, as well as the quality of language of the courts, and how long and costly the litigation process might be. Yes, and although that may sound quite daunting, it is important to consider it at the outset, even where you think you have the best relationship in the world with the counterparty, because it's inevitable that contracts will produce disputes from time to time. That's right. So a jurisdiction clause will state that the parties have agreed to the courts of a named country having the right to hear any disputes that might arise in the contract. Usually, a jurisdiction clause will provide for either exclusive or non-exclusive jurisdiction. Yes, and the interpretation of these terms may vary across legal systems. In broad terms, exclusive jurisdiction is more restrictive and means that only the specified courts will have jurisdiction to hear disputes. Non-exclusive jurisdiction means those specified courts can hear disputes, but the parties are not prevented from litigating in other courts if they think it's appropriate to do so. That's correct. So that's why non-exclusive jurisdiction clauses may be the preferred option for parties involved in a cross-border commercial transaction. Each party has the option to approach the courts of a particular jurisdiction of their choice, so they may be able to initiate legal proceedings in the courts of a more favourable jurisdiction. There's quite a lot of complex points to consider here, so it's worth discussing in more detail with a lawyer if you're concerned about the enforceability of an exclusive or non-exclusive jurisdiction clause. 
Yeah, and one quick tip that may sometimes work as a compromise is a reciprocal clause that provides for the defendant's home country to always have jurisdiction. So, for example, if party A is French and party B is English, the clause would provide that if party A sues party B, so where the English party is the defendant, the English courts have jurisdiction. But if party B sues party A, the French courts have jurisdiction. This can be a compromise that reassures the parties that they won't have to engage in litigation in an unfamiliar court system unless they actively want to start the litigation against the other party themselves. That's really useful. Okay, we're going to wrap up fairly quickly as we've covered a lot already, but a couple of things to touch on before we go. One is that you might sometimes see a jurisdiction clause specifying that disputes should be resolved through arbitration. Yeah, that's quite common in commercial contracts and often parties might actually prefer to go with arbitration over the courts as a means of determining dispute. But since arbitration has a lot of distinct issues that would take too long to cover here, we'll leave that for another shoe pod. Yes, and one more thing to flag is not to get confused with the concept of applicable law, which can be a separate defined term in a contract. So where you see something in a contract that says the parties agree to comply with all applicable law, it just means the type of law that would apply to the work taking place under the contract. For example, a contract for taxi services might be governed by English law, but if the services are being provided in Japan, then the Japanese road traffic laws and employment laws will apply to how the services are carried out. The governing law simply applies to the way that the contract is interpreted, not how the party's businesses under the contract will be carried out. Yeah, interesting point. Um, So we can see that it's crucial to understand which law applies to your contract because different countries have different legal systems and their laws can be hugely different. And if you're dealing with a contract that involves parties from different countries, it's even more essential to know which law governs your contract. Yes. So let's finish with some tips for drafting a governing law and jurisdiction clause. First, make sure that the clause is clear and unambiguous. Use precise wording, especially when you're talking about countries that have multiple systems, for example, the US and UK or Canada. Yeah, so don't say US law, say California law, for example. Yes, and secondly, make sure that the choice of law is a genuine one and ideally has a connection to the contract and the parties. Finally, consider seeking legal advice to ensure that the clause is drafted correctly and that the chosen law will provide the desired outcomes. Yes, the last thing that you want is for there to be a dispute about which law applies because the clause was poorly drafted. In the absence of a governing law clause, the law that applies will be determined by the court, which can be a lengthy, costly and uncertain process. Yeah, and in the absence of a jurisdiction clause, you might end up with your dispute being considered by a court that might be unfavourable to you or conducting the case in a language or manner you're unfamiliar with. So it's always best to set this one out in the contract as well. That's great advice, Paul. So if you're unsure about which law to use or how to draft the clause, do seek legal advice as it could save you time and money in the long run. Yeah, and that brings us to the end of today's session. We hope you found it informative. And of course, if you need any assistance with anything that we've touched on today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Yeah, so from Paul and me, thank you very much for listening. 